Christmas time is here Happiness and cheer Fun for all the children call Their favorite time of year Snowflakes in the air Carols everywhere Hooray, hurrah, and Christmas greetings. Uh, Nancy Wilson uh, sings to us from uh, the big holiday uh, in the sky. Uh, she's swirling all around uh, Vince Guaraldi's awesome uh, hit from uh, the uh, believable album A Nancy Wilson Christmas, which is what we're having this year. Uh, we'll get to Nancy Wilson later and her immortality that precedes her. Uh, one of the great rhythm and blues, soul and jazz artists uh, that this country's ever produced in an extraordinary 50-year career on a billion albums. Hi, hooray, hurrah, the smartest man in the world, Poopcast takes the ether this time from the Portress of Proofacood, located right here in the Portress. Uh, I've had both my eyes out in the last week, uh, my left eye last week, my right eye this week. So I'm in those uh, awkward in-between years where I can't really see. I have a pair of glasses, uh, that kind of which I haven't had since I was seven years old. Um, I can sort of see in the middle distance, but I have to take them off to see anything close. So I'm walking around bumping into anything. Jennifer's here. Hello, but you have a Santa hat on. I do have a Santa hat on, and it has a leopard trim, so I'm uh, as chic as I can possibly be. And uh, um, we're having a good time here in the Porpoise of Fruititude, or the Pugris of Trudicude, or whatever I just bloody well called it <laughs> here. Uh, we're taking to the sky to once again join hands and join hearts in this um, uh, burning cinder of a, a Yule log or a Duraflame log. Uh, and find some solace in one another's company here. Uh, let's jump right in, shall we? Uh, we've missed so much in the last week, but I wanted to talk about a couple of awesome things that have happened um, since the last time we met. Uh, first of all, I wanted to go back, if we may, in time, as, um, as Huey Lewis in the News once suggested, and talk a little bit about Nancy Pelosi uh, and, and that meeting last week. Now, we didn't talk about it in the show last week, did we? No. You mean where she slayed? Yeah. Uh, the meeting with Chuck Schumer, um, uh, Orange 45, Mike Pence sat wrapped with his eyes closed, rocking back and forth gently with his tie hanging down under his coat like he had just come back from an eighth grade um, sort of hayride. Um, Schumer n- didn't look. Uh, they formed a triangle as um, Nancy gazed directly upon Orange 45. Orange 45 tried to yell down everyone in the room and Schumer sort of gazed off into the distance past Nancy. So they double teamed him. Um, but the point was, after they came out of the meeting and completely flummoxed him by using facts and whatnot, this was, if you recall, about a week ago. Now, so much has happened since then. Mm-hmm. There's been Cohen and Flynn and uh, Butina. Uh, so many indictments flying. Uh, we've, uh, we've withdrawn from Syria because we've beaten ISIS. There's been so much good news. Um, <laughs> we've, we've banned lynching federally, finally. So many things have happened. It's been an avalanche, an avalanche of goodness. Um, but if you'll remember one short week ago, um, Nancy Pelosi, um, with her trim ankles sitting erect, um, eviscerated him with facts, uh, Orange 45, that is, and then strode onto the um, pitch right to the lectern. Um, Chuck has that kind of hunchy um, sort of NYU professor thing going mm-hmm. on where his glasses are perched at the end of his nose. And he seems avuncular and caring and yet... Unable to get the waiter's attention at right, the he's bar. He's always grading papers. Right? I'm, I'm going to have to give you a B minus on this. I loved your intention on this, but I just think your work was... I'm always afraid he can't get the bar, uh, uh, the, the bar staff's attention. That's he's Cafe Lou. Right? He seems to me like the kind of person who... Um, you're going to sit there a long time until you get the check because Chuck's unable to get that. Whereas Nancy would have already sent word to the kitchen and the, and the chef's already come out and talked to the whole table. Yes. And made something special for you, like a scallop dish that they've had in advance. Um, I just, uh, maybe I'm wrong on this. Maybe Chuck's super, super awesome in person. Um, I've met Amy and I know Amy's related to him. Am I pouring liquid all over my computer screen? No, you're fine. Okay. Um, (laughs) difficult for me to ascertain at this point. And, uh, so she came out and she was wearing this coat and I wanted to read you uh, a little piece from, uh, I think this is the uh, the New York times. Nancy Pelosi's coat catches fire (laughs) is the headline. It's the boldest political um, piece of political outerwear since the other coat. And then uh, there's a photograph of them striding out there. You may remember it's an orange um, sort of mid-length jacket, uh, mid-calf, I would say. Burnt orange. Burnt orange um, with a high collar and um, as a, I don't know, sort of a high shoulders, very military style. There's no... Well, ep- not of- military style. What? I would say it was kind of a, a very... 
classic 60s cut. Formidable, though. I mean, yes. there's it an edifice. It made a statement. Yeah. I mean, she she came out in heels and that. She took his erongitude and made it hers. Right. After she smote him. She borrowed his erongitude, which was mm-hmm. just astonishing. Um, let's see here. Nancy Pelosi tossed on like a victor's cloak. Uh, the funnel-necked piece of outerwear Nancy Pelosi talked on, tossed on like a victor's cloak after exiting her contentious meeting. Um, I wouldn't say it was contentious. I would say it was a lopsided victory. Um, if there was any contention, it was the fact that uh, 45 kept screaming they were going to build a wall. I have the votes for the wall. Um, I'm going to, Congress will easily vote for the wall. And Nancy Pelosi at one point went, then do it. Mm-hmm. And then said to him at one point, you don't have the votes for the wall. Are you sure we haven't discussed this before? In any case, dark glasses, sharp heels, and a smile of post-combat exhilaration. The coat whispered burn with a wink and a swish. I don't know. I thought the coat shouted, I dominated you. Yes. I don't know about a wink and a swish. I thought, as you said, the coat purloined his longitude and um, reconstituted it back to him. She also said to him, don't characterize the strength that I bring when he said Nancy doesn't want to talk about this. So she completely owned uh, her own gigantic victory. And by her own gigantic victory, I mean the victory of 100 women being elected to the House and her um, re-anointment and reappointment as what will certainly be um, Speaker of the House again uh, come January. Also, she's third in line. Oh, yeah. After the sleepy guy and the shouty guy. Mm. When shouty guy and sleepy guy get indicated, um, our, our Nancy might be, um, well, she's certainly third in line for president again. Uh, let's see here. It didn't take long for the coat to get its own Twitter handle, Nancy Coat, and then it got another AM, AM Coat. Um, it was some speculation that the designer was Carolyn Herrera. It's not. The right answer is Max Mara. The coat's no longer available except as a reseller, but it is now. They've re-put it mm-hmm. out again, so you can go on Max Mara's site. Um, because her- I think women saw it as, as a power coat. Which is beautiful. That that would be why it would be reissued as a symbol of power for women. I agree. And I think it was so strong um, and so tremendously uh, uh, pointed and poignant. Um, 45 wears those long ties and the terrible, terrible big shoulders and the droopy, non-fitting coats and the baggy pants. And um, the pantser always wears... Uh, his body's awful and his lower body's terrible. He has that kind of police, you know, like... Oh, it's ghastly. Yeah, you know, like sort of shambly body. And he always, he has his coat too tight and his tie sticking out below, which I hate on television. Like I have spent my whole life trying to hide the bottom part of the tie from sticking out like that because it looks ghastly. Well, also it, it may seem shallow to talk about fashion to this extent, but, but everything is a symbol. Everything is a message. Um, a red baseball cap is a, is a trigger. Potent. Yeah. I don't and, think it's shallow at all. It, it makes me think of what we were talking about before with, um, the Cambridge Analytica whistleblower, Christopher Wiley, uh, was at a conference in England this week. And he said, uh, about how they were, Cambridge Analytica was looking at data of how people shop online and what people wore. And he said the shame, the colonialism, the racial biases, the toxic masculinity, the fat shaming that the fashion industry puts out and has been putting out for decades is exactly what Cambridge Analytica sought to exploit when they were seeking to undermine people and and uh, manipulate them. and also, uh, the underlying danger is the unchecked power of technology companies mining our personal data, said Wiley. Silicon Valley sees the Internet as Terra Nova. He explained, likening tech giants such as Facebook to conquerors. Those companies are not our saviors. They are seeking to colonize us. Facebook is the new East India company of the Internet. That's an extraordinary statement to make. Uh, both of those things. One, of course, the fat shaming and talking about how... Uh, preying on people's insecurities, um, their weaknesses. We're all too fat. We're all too this. We're all too old. We're all too. My hair is not the right color. My face isn't the right shape. I wish I could lose weight. I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. When everybody knows, as Oscar Wilde said, your imperfections are what makes you unique. Your weaknesses are your strengths. I've been told an entire lifetime that I'm too gay, that my voice is too this, that I'm too effeminate, blah, blah, blah. I wouldn't have a life or a career or any distinct personality were it otherwise. Um, not to bring it back to me, but I'm saying everyone has to take this on in their own way. And two, calling it Terra Nova is a really profound thing. 
the East India Company was such a powerful entity that um, from the um, 1600s onward, uh, they had a private army and a private navy that worked not at the behest of the crown, but in conjunction with the crown and had to be curtailed and brought under the aegis of the crown and de-privatized um, uh, uh, in the 19th century after the giant wars in India in the middle of uh, the 19th century. Until then, it was called John Company by the people who worked for it. And they had their own private armies and they were colonizing and raping and pillaging the entire uh, of, uh, you know, Southeast Asia, uh, obviously the subcontinent of India, um, the colonies in, in North America and the Caribbean, whatnot, uh, and Canada, and obviously America up till the revolution. Well, they thought it was their right to exploit. Terra Nova means the new land. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, the their effects are, I mean, they're seen in so many places, but I'm thinking of Burma, Myanmar. Hmm. That is the product of the, the boundaries of that country or the product of the East India Company. Most certainly. And um, the adjunct companies that took over um, the Middle East, uh, that administered the Middle East up until uh, the 19th century, and Africa are still uh, those, all those borders, I think, are remnants of that. And uh, the fact that they had to be made to basically be part, uh, absorbed into the British government, uh, and that the government, the British government was willing to allow the, give them that gigantic charter for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, to exploit things mm-hmm. and uh, pay their tithing to the crown and all that. Well, not unlike Spain or Portugal or Holland, but certainly uh, the analogy is not lost uh, that it's time to rein in Google and Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which is what's so exciting about the Attorney General of D.C., Carl Racine, is uh, today uh, announcing he's suing Facebook for allowing Cambridge Analytica to access data from millions of users. Uh, The documents were acquired by the British Parliament in their investigation. Uh, It's interesting to note that Carl Racine was an associate White House counsel to Bill Clinton and that he was born in Haiti and he moved to D.C. as a kid. So uh, how profound that he would come to our rescue. And he's the AG of D.C., is it? Yes. He's 54, I think. It's also not lost on me that he's um, African-American. Right. The um, tech companies in their uh, homogeneity are relentlessly white, relentlessly ageist, um, and relentlessly sexist. They tend to really be um, white guys guys. in their 20s and 30s. When you reach a certain age... Um, you're done. They don't let women, they don't love to have women write code. There's very few women who sit on the boards and there's very few people of color. Having said that, you saw the, um, <laughs> the CEO, <laughs> the CEO, <laughs> Oh my God. I can't even get it out. If anyone watched the congressional, the hearing oh last Lord. week, the CEO of Google got up. And uh, our, evidently, the people in our Senate are so unfamiliar with tech that at one point, uh, one of the senators said, uh, my iPhone, you know, there was a bad incident and the CEO of Google went, uh, um, Google doesn't make the iPhone. He didn't know that Google was a search engine and he didn't know that the iPhone was made by Apple. Um, that's unclear. Um, but then again, you have people like Chuck Grassley and Louis Gohmert and uh, John King and Kennedy and Corbin. And uh, I just made that up. I threw in Corbin. It's Cornyn. <laughs> Not Jeremy. They're wildly uneducated and wildly untech savvy. Um, yeah, the, I, I think that, um, well, you, you know, you and I, that's partly why you and I agree so much. Dressing is absolutely emblematic of everything and everything is a signifier yeah a red baseball cap it means one thing now and it, mm-hmm. that it didn't mean before and the white polo shirt means you're a neo-nazi mm-hmm. in khaki the pants bill. a tiki torch mm-hmm. um a pussy hat uh there's a million or and you have to be aware of that you know you you can't discount that what you're wearing is a is a uniform, no matter what it is. No, and that, that you have to own it, and you have to be aware of it, and what it might mean to other people. And to be even more explanatory about it, the 
this the whole eighth grade barn dance, um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, um, uh, Cracker Barrel way of dressing that Huckabee. Uh, um, bad tie, loose fitting, nineties, we're out of touch thing mm-hmm. is definitely it's calculated and sending a message to to the mm-hmm. people that it's supposed to mean something to the people who feel uncomfortably being um, oppressed by sophisticated people. They, the people that they feel are um, that the elites are crushing them, that intellectuals and uh, people from sophisticated places are, are 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 taking up too much of their emotional time and space. That they're forcing homosexuality and uh, sophistication on them, and all those things that they see as the enemy. Um, whereas I think, uh, you see someone like, um, uh, Mr. Trudeau in, uh, Canada or Monsieur Macron in Paris or Ms. Merkel in Germany. And you see how they dress. Um, they're tied down. They look really professional. Um, uh, Macron and Trudeau are enormously fit and, and, and young. Mm -hmm. They're both in their early forties and they look like they run a lot and they keep it together. They, they're not you know, um, chunky older men. They don't have that William Howard Taft thing going on. They have that JFK <laughs> thing going on or the RFK thing going on. You're sexy with good hair. And then Angela Merkel's got that redoubtable statesperson mm-hmm. thing going on because she's so intelligent and so pulled together. And then Putin's got that creepy, uh, uh, um, you know, a bad cop thing, that bad cop look mm-hmm. that he does with the bad facelift and the horrible eyes. I always um, think of that, uh, the exhibit that we saw in London of, dictators when they were young mm. and there was a photo of Remember him that? as maybe a 10 year old yes uh with a far away kind of hateful glance yeah and he looked exactly the same that was when i'm sure he was torturing animals and mm. you know the things Ugh. that they do well you know duarte duarte works that um you know that that classic uh 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 uh, Marcos Noriega thing where you wear the untucked shirt, the sunglasses, and the I'm the tropical dictator. Uh, I've got a, th- uh, you know, uh, I, I, I'm heedless of everyone's feelings, police state. I chop, mm-hmm. I chop heads off. I'm summary. The Orange 45 uh, tower decor just screams Ceausescu. Oh, doesn't it? it, it so, um, Orban in Hungary, that tastelessness. Um, Who was the Ukrainian? Yanukovych or whatever his name was. Who had the, the ship... And the the fantasy land, at a, and the people would after he was deposed, people went to go visit it. Oh yes, I can't. Who was that? It was an Yanukovych. Well, we'll we'll come back to that. Uh, yeah, and he had, he 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 had like a Peter Pan land. Fun, of funny, and, funny how they have the same taste, taste or lack of. Yes. Uh, no, everything's like Graceland. Right. When you hate other people, you gravitate to that look all of a sudden you've got a gold ceiling and 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 terrible chests of drawers with gilt on them and uh, uh and and blue vases and, and a po- lot of ostrich leather jackets right and portraits of yourself <laughs> the- oh what about that the uh barbara the, underwood the trump foundation yeah brought down the trump foundation and she gets to decide uh to decide where the money goes which is just sensational, just wonderful. Really, um, keeping evil at abeyance. Uh, it's an extraordinary moment in American legal history. A sitting, um, and I hesitate to use the word, but <clears throat> let's call him a leader, shall we? A sitting person who's in office, um, having his entire charity not only taken away from him, but the rights to what happens with the funds from that charity being given over to the state of New York's legal. Mm-hmm. Um, team so that they will decide where it's apportioned it's never happened before like what's been going on with the um uh, collaborating with the russians i hate the word collusion like what's been going on with maria Butina, conspiracy. like what's been going on with this conspiracy with flynn uh, cohen um and the now the famous uh, uh giuliani we didn't sign an affidavit saying we were going to meet with the russians or we did sign an affidavit <laughs> we know now that um they've been collaborating with them and conspiring with them uh, collusion is a weird word. It's a spongy, amorphous word. C- conspiracy and collaboration are more to the key. Um, that uh, These are all unprecedented crimes that are at the highest level of... Uh, uh, go ahead. By the way, uh, Barbara Underwood, she took over from Schneiderman, who was forced out. And For being she, a pervert. Yes. she was. She's only been the New York State... Attorney General since May. Yes. She's gotten so much done. Right. And then now Tish Campbell, is it? 
Uh, Tish James. Tish James. I gave her a different name. I gave her the name of a singer. I gave her Tish Campbell's name. (laughs) Tish James. uh, Leticia James. Ms. Leticia James will take over for her next month. Uh, Barbara Underwood is a real bloody hero. Just to go back and finish this off here uh, with Nancy Pelosi. She wore that coat before once at um, uh, Obama's second inauguration. She knew the meeting would be televised. That was beautiful, too. That Um, that was sending a message. It was right. It was no coincidence. Um, uh, let's see. Ms. Pelosi wore a lavender suit to lead her troops to the healthcare vote in 2010 and bright blue when she won the leadership nomination last month. You may remember that our Hills wore red, mm-hmm. white, and blue. Mm-hmm. And on the night she was nominated for um, the first woman nominated to run for president, she suffrage. wore yeah, white, mm-hmm. which was the color of suffrage. Yes. And her mother and my mother were born in the same year, 1919, and um, were born before women, white women. Um, had the right to vote in the United States. So all of these are really highly symbolic, and I'll have it no other way, uh, and I don't think Jennifer will either. Um, a trucker cap means something. A gun patch means something. Um, your right. tie means something. And I don't mean just class and symbols of status. Uh, uh, when I wear a suit and tie, to me it's not a matter of a symbol of status. You've taught me over the years that... Dressing up is a matter of respect for yourself mm-hmm. and for the people that you're meeting and dealing with. Um, this is something that was never lost on people who aren't white people who, as Don Rickles so brilliantly said before he passed, wear their pajamas to the show. Now, I understand why white people feel so comfortable that. Well, I always think of, um, if I may... Jump uh, in. When I got to meet James Brown at the airport... Please expand on this story, <laughs> won't you? I think I, I think everyone will enjoy this story. I happen to have been wearing a, a thrift no, no, store. No, no, no. You have to go back a little bit further. What? Just set the scene a little right. bit. You don't just start okay. with "I met James Brown at the airport." Yeah. Well, I was there early in the morning. I was by myself. I had gone to visit a friend in Paris, and it was eighty-nine. 90. Uh, Greg was doing Who's Line in London. And I got a chance to see my friend from San Francisco in Paris. And I, the clothes that I had were either from a lip service on Melrose or from a thrift store. But I happened to be wearing, uh, so I, I did, I had a carry on and I was wearing almost everything that I brought, which was a, a cape from a thrift store. It was like a 60s cape. Yeah. A blue velvet jacket. The cape was velvety, too. Was velvet. No, it was black. Black. <laughs> you were wearing a cape in the black morning. Black velvet leggings. It was 8.30 in the morning, and I was wearing Chelsea boots. And I, you know, I guess I I didn't feel ridiculous in that ensemble. Well, not in Paris. And, uh, well, Parisians are conservative in their dress. But anyway... So I'm sitting there by myself, and uh, James Brown appears. He's the first off his flight. There's no one around. And so I thought, well, I have to seize this moment. And I, and I jumped up, and I, and I went over, and I shook his hand. May I ask what James Brown was wearing, please? It was sort of similar what to what like? I was start, wearing. Start to the, hair the, the, the reason I bring it up was he was sort of wearing what I was yes. wearing. Did he have a cape on? He wasn't wearing a cape. He was wearing a matador jacket. Thank you. Uh, high-waisted trousers, mm-hmm. Chelsea boots, right. and uh, blue a satin blouse. And I was wearing a satin yeah. blouse. So did he have a Marcel or a giant bouffant? There were a lot of curls. Yeah. And it was it was he was uh, eight in the morning. Oh, like full hair and makeup. Oh, and they'd been up since six, I'm guessing. Yeah. And he came over to me because he assumed the way I was dressed, that I was there to meet him. Yeah. And I asked him if I could just shake his hand. And we talked, and then his entourage got off the plane. And a, there was no one around. And finally, a French guy, a young guy, came over and asked him if he could have an autograph. And James Brown looked at him and then looked at me and said, no, but you can shake my hand and smiled at me. Wow. It was cool. And then I got on the plane and there was so much cologne on that plane. How much cologne? Oh my God. <laughs> did you eyes, did your eyes burn? 
it was kind of hilarious. As you once said to me, um, turbo brute. Yeah, yeah, it was it was intense. But I've never been happier to have happened to be wearing a cape at 8.30 in the morning at an airport, which is, this is a long way to go to say, don't ever be embarrassed to dress how you want to dress and dress up and uh, take care with how you look. You know, I, I think I bought the cape for $3. We're not talking like, you know. No. I agree. The thing about when you're overdressed is you're never overdressed when you're overdressed. I remember going to um, a playoff game in uh, the 80s with uh, my roommate, Dennis, and he'd come from a gig and he was wearing a tuxedo. I remember going to um, basketball games uh, at the Warriors, and I would say to the guys I would go with, um, suit and tie. And we'd wear suit and ties to the basketball game. And then you often, uh, when I would go with Warren Thomas, our good buddy, um, I would be dressed in a suit and tie, and he would be wearing his usual outfit. He dressed like Mac Ten, which was <laughs> Timberland boots, jeans, and a flannel shirt and a baseball hat. And um, we'd walk in together, and uh, I'd say, "Let me go first. And we would walk right down into the front, and no one would stop us. The power of it is uh, pretty wild. Um, also, like you say, it's got to be fun too. The respect of it, you know. When well, I always watch... think of jazz musicians. What? How do they dress? I mean, Ron oh, Carter. Don't even, don't Ron even. Carter. I mean, Ron Carter. When you went up to Ron Carter, we went to see Ron Carter last year, this year, and um, uh, Jennifer. We after the show, it was at a small joint here in Los Angeles called the Catalina, which is really nice. That kind of okay food and uh, beautiful atmosphere, like you know, really intimate. And Ron Carter plays at a perfect level of volume. Like, it's mm-hmm. so... It's just loud enough. It's not loud. It's tasteful. And it's piano, um, hollow body guitar, and um, bass. And beautiful, all standards. And they all wear two-die suits with pocket squares. And beautiful, it's it's white shirts all around, and shiny, 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 shiny shoes. Oh yeah. And Ron Carter's six and a half feet tall and <laughs> most elegant. So we go up after the gig, and they play Funny Valentine, and they play uh, They'll Never Be Other. All this just really lovely. And um, Ron Carter's available after the show, hanging, and Jennifer goes, "Mr. Carter, you're so." smart and elegant and funny and great and he he pretends to write it down <laughs> with it like a emotion like a pad on his hand and then he goes tell me about it and that <laughs> that made me <laughs> but like they look smashing well, when we saw herbie hancock play the, the suit herbie the, hancock was wearing the was, dignity and and you know being having that refined kind of look ironing your clothes and taking care and just miles davis feeling it um i think that when we when we saw uh ron carter that night uh miles davis's uh first wife francis who was a broadway star was there and I think that was the beautiful thing about uh, when you catch these people in jazz clubs now. Um, there are people, uh, special people, who uh, she was a, a dancer and a performer, and I don't think Miles Davis let her uh, continue her career. Oh, his wife? Right. She was there that night. Yeah, she was. She, she was on a couple of his album covers. Yes. Um, but she was there to hang out with Ron Carter, and, and uh, that's what's cool, too, about going to see these performers, is you don't know who might be in the audience, too. Well, as I recall, the night I wasn't there and you went, everybody was there. That every, <laughs> every bass basically player. Basically, every musician, right. Every, I, I happened to get seated with uh, John B. Williams, who, right. and I, I mentioned to him, and I, you know, I... I don't know why, but I mentioned to him that about Bob Crenshaw, who was a bass player who had just passed away. It turned out Bob Crenshaw was John B. Williams's mentor and had got him a gig on, of all things, Sesame Street. 
Well, Crenshaw had the gig for what, like 15 years? Well, and, and Crenshaw, I think he's one of those bass players that's on everything. If you look at right, him like up, Ron he's, Carter, like yeah, 2,000 records. Has a phenomenal career, as does John Commercials, TV shows, mm-hmm. uh, um, well, Tonight Show bands. Jazz clubs, he was, yeah. He wasn't he in Doc Severinsen's band and shit? And, uh, John B. Williams was. Uh, I'm, he was on the he was in the Carson's band, wasn't he? No, uh, later he was on. Uh, I'm going to have to look this up. That's all right. Well, they, suffice to say, they gigged constantly, and it was everything. But what a including delight, Sesame Street! What a delight! To, oh, he was uh, John B. Williams was in Horace Silver's band, and never uh, heard of it. Really? Uh, he studied with Ron Carter. Surprise! Um, and you know the beautiful thing is these guys are. 80 and they're still around yeah he was he was in the tonight yeah, show I'm, band. I'm, I'm i'm not wrong no, right. oh. he was the <laughs> so he was the in the house band of the arsenio hall show too. Arsenio that's what hall, i was thinking about you're right he, but, but i knew he was in the tonight show but band he too. told me he would not have gotten any of that if bob crenshaw hadn't said look i have to do a studio gig do you want to sit in for me on sesame street it was totally not done and he said to me like he showed up and the other musicians are like who are you (laughs) what are you doing bob who sent you what right and he just like you know snuck in there and like that's it and fortunately i can read read charts and i'm as good as bob so here we go yeah and he ended up keeping that gig but for I mean, how long? He I was in the Sesame happened, Street band for I got, 20 years or something? Right, and I, but I just got to sit with him yeah. at the jazz club at Catalina and hear his story. And it was, you know, it was, it was fascinating and, and amazing. And all the other cats came over and uh, to talk to him, too. Yes. And um, that other cat whose uh, dad was, um, uh, was a big band leader. Right. And uh, all the other bass players. Right, been the in other him. person at the table. His grandparents were in the house orchestra at MGM, and then right. uh, they had become his grandparents had become uh, part of Frank Sinatra's. That's right touring group. And then, um, so I mean, was it Miles? Randomly, these were my table mates. Yeah, no, you, yeah, you had a grand night. Uh, well, that's the thing. As we always say, you've got to go out and see people, and you've got to go out and see them now. Uh, I never got to see Nancy Wilson. I saw her on Tally, of course. Um, uh, the other day, we were listening to Ramsey Lewis, who's still touring, and I believe he's 80. Yeah. And uh, he met Nancy Wilson, I think, in the early 60s, and they hit it off, and she became godmother to his children let's spin a little nancy wilson shall we uh nancy wilson um i'm going to read you a little bit from the uh jim farber wrote an obit for for the new york times um but before i read that uh jennifer sent me another article about her and i thought it had one of the great lines in it it was from an la times review from the coconut grove gig that she did in the early 60s and uh, she killed it so hard at the Grove in Los Angeles that uh, the critic said they gave her everything but the deed to the building. <laughs> and I thought that that's a review um, because Nancy Wilson was a rare mixture of style, class and soul. She was able to um, swing it. Uh, she's also a great um, jazz, uh, jazz singer, obviously, but obviously a great soul singer and pop singer as well. Mm-hmm. Um, she had a television show when we were kids, the same time as Flip Wilson. Flip Wilson's show ran from 70 to 75, and hers, I think, was 73, 74, mm-hmm. called The Nancy Wilson Show. She was also a frequent guest on everyone else's show, as she often wore a really swinging gown and high heels. She was glamorous. Really and, glamorous. And I remember what Ramsey Lewis said, that what struck him when he first met her was she was really laid back, and she had a great sense of humor. Right? Right? Um, here's one uh, that they did together. Our Ramsey's still alive, by the way, and uh, our Nancy lives forever. Do we know who wrote this? Peel me a grape. Crush me some ice, skim me a peach, leave the fuzz for my pillow. Start me a smoke, talk 
to me nice You oh. got a wine me and wine me Don't try I want to say to me Be jewel me Either amuse me or lose me I'm getting hungry Unerring sense of taste and refinement. Unfailing phrasing. No cloying. No. No overreaching. She's the epitome of class and style. She's a stylist without any affectation. She's a force of nature. She's someone who made 50 records. She's someone who collaborated with every great jazz artist and pop artist of her era. She's someone who appreciated every style of music. She's singular, I think, in a lot of ways. And another thing um, is how to be she was enormously popular. In the early 60s, there was a time when Nancy Wilson was an unstoppable force at Capitol Records. Yeah. And uh, um, people don't want to t- even... The fact that she had a television show when they weren't giving black women jazz singers television shows as much as they might uh, says quite a lot about um, her perspicaciousness, her alacrity, her ability to perform on television as a sketch artist, um, a personality, and the amazing breadth and scope of her humanity as a as an artist uh, she, she was, was really a, able to do it all she was a civil rights activist too oh she's extraordinary like uh, let's see here in a long and celebrated career ms wilson performed american standards jazz balance uh, let's see i have a gift for telling stories and make them seem larger than life kenny signature piece yeah she um she did uh, was a civil rights activist as well she was inducted into the international civil rights walk of fame uh in 2005 as an artist, taking a political stand came with professional risks, but it had to be done. She was born in Chillicothe, 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 Ohio. Six children. Her dad was a supervisor at an iron foundry. Her mother was a maid. Her father played Nat King Cole, Billy Eckstein, and Jimmy Scott. So much of my phrasing is similar to Jimmy Scott's, wow. she says, right? By the time she was 10, she was lead singer in the local choir. No formal training she worshipped Dinah Washington. Well, rightly so. We all worship Dinah Washington. Let's spin one off the Cannonball Adderley album. This is one that a lot of jazz fans talk about a lot. I'm going to, uh, let's see, we'll play Save Your Love for Me. Save Your Love for Me off the Cannonball Adderley. 62. She was signed by John Levy. She worked with George Shearing, and she went to Capitol. Why I'm so in love with you. No one else in this world will do. Darling, please save your love for me. Run away If I were wise I'd run away But like a fool in love I stay And pray you'll save your love for me I can feel it Even when you're not here Can't conceal it I really love you, my dear And though I know no good Can come from loving you I can't do a thing I'm so 
it's impossible to shower enough praise on Nancy Wilson. I could read you uh, a lot of different things about her. But let's just suffice to say that she's an unfoxable version of... Uh, not only did she handle the American songbook, she handled pop and jazz and rhythm and blues and everything with great alacrity and an unconceivable seeming lack of effort and, and dignity and uh, forthrightness and sincerity that's kind of unmatched. If I hate this word, but slightly underrated maybe because she lived so long and had retired maybe 10 years ago. Well, so much grace and she's just a pure song stylist. She wouldn't have called herself a jazz singer either, I don't think. Just astonishing. Uh, Nancy Walton uh, is forever and uh, lives in the heavens. Uh, speaking of women um, who did everything they could, uh, let's talk about Penny Marshall for just a second here. I wanted to read a couple things. Uh, Penny Marshall did something that uh, not a lot of comedians did. She was a performer um, who uh, started as a guest star. Um, did a bunch of shows. Her, her brother, of course, uh, was a producer of... Gary was a producer of The Odd Couple, who was only The Guardian newspaper and all English publications could say predeceased her. I, I can't think of a more awful word than that. Mm-hmm. Um, in any case, um, Penny Marshall and Gary are uh, uh, square dancing in the heavens right now, um, doing very broad jokes, I presume. <laughs> and uh, here's what makes Penny Marshall so bitchin' in so many ways. She held down the lead as um, a star on a 70s and early 80s um, sitcom. She made a $100 million movie and is the first woman to do so. She was nominated for Best Picture. She might be the second woman uh, next to Lena Wertmuller, who was nominated, I think, for Best Picture as a director. She um, made a bunch of um, mainstream comedies and other types of movies, thrillers and whatnot. In a time where uh, it was presumed that only men had that touch, um, I don't think uh, she took any um, backseat to anybody as far as... Uh, if you put Big and League of Their Own, uh, Awakenings and all that up against anybody's oeuvre from then, I think Penny Marshall is uh, an extraordinary comic mind. The thing she put forward is something that people related to. The reason why Big and A League of Their Own are so popular and so enduring is that there's not a lot of bullshit about the comedy. It's sentimental, but in an old-fashioned way that makes it awesome. And there's a melancholy in both of those stories that's undersung, let's be honest. In Big, he's a child who moves into an adult's job, and then there's that weird sexual part where, like, he might have an affair with Elizabeth Perkins, but they don't. And then in uh, A League of Their Own, which is, and I'm not going to go off about baseball, but I will go off about this. No male director ever thought to make a movie about the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. It took Penny Marshall mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. It took her with her power after Big to do that. It took her with her power to get Gina Davis, Madonna, Rosie O'Donnell, Tia Leone, that cast of that movie, Laura Pate. Um, they're all athletes. You, Jennifer and I watched an interview with her, and she said she talked to lots of actresses, and if they didn't know about baseball and they couldn't play baseball, she threw them by the wayside. <laughs> she said any actress that came in with ballet shoes on her didn't understand what the the scope of the picture was, was out. Gina Davis, Lori Petty, Madonna, Rosie got the idea. You had to be a ball player, first and foremost. You had to understand what that meant. Um, I have no notes about the picture. The only thing I'll say as an ad and um, an Eric Estrada is that the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League was not a one-year affair as depicted in the picture. It was an eight-year affair. It was. It lasted a long time, and there was a lot of professional women athletes in the United States, white women, that played in the Midwest in, in this circuit. Um, yes, the character that Tom Hanks plays, which follows up his character in Big, who obviously... Big was a surprise hit for her, but it made a lot of money, a ton of money, and that's why she was able to make the women's baseball mm-hmm. picture, which no... But that was hard for her to get going. Absolutely hard for her. And... God bless Tom Hanks for coming in and playing. He's playing um, an actual ball player named Jimmy Fox, who was an alcoholic and did manage one of the women's teams during that era. And good for him for doing it. 
Um, it's a picture of sensitivity, but let's get to the chase on it. They don't win at the end. Their league is disbanded. They are not allowed to live their dream. It's On further viewings, it's nostalgic, but it's also not a male... In a male movie, they would win the pennant and there'd be a home run hit and they'd win and the whole thing and there'd be flags flying and banners flapping and like the natural and fireworks going off. In and this by the picture, way, in the natural, how old is he? 50. Like he's a thousand years old. Welcome to the Major Leagues, Mr. Hobbs. He's 40. Um, at the end of this picture, they, if you recall, the Schindler's listed at the end and they all reconvene at the hall where they're given a small exhibit and Dottie's there and whatnot. And all of it's quite true. Quite, quite true. And uh, it's, uh, it's an extraordinary moment, I think, in a lot of ways. Not just because it's a great... It's a comedy movie. Uh, it's really funny. Uh, there's a lot of great jokes in it. Um, what does Madonna say? What if I slide and my uniform slides down and everyone sees my bosom? And Rosie O'Donnell goes, do you think there's anyone in America who hasn't seen your bosom? Um, and then, uh, the, you know, they, they go through all the... Um, uh, how great of athletes they were. They weren't allowed to wear pads. They had to wear skirts. They had to take deportment. All those things are true that are in the picture. They had male groupies, um, which they sometimes eschewed uh, because you can imagine during the war. Um, they were also, uh, you know, it's that weird, it's a glorious mixture of the tokenism of World War II when women were allowed to all of a sudden take over because men were gone. Mm -hmm. um, but also the, glory of what women did during World War II. The women were allowed to be professional athletes and they murdered it. Women were allowed to run things and they murdered it. And then men came back. And Penny Marshall's kind of a, if you'll pardon, a terrible metaphor for that in the 80s and 90s. She murdered it until men came back in and kind of pushed her out a little bit in the early 2000s. Um, I think she's an extraordinary filmmaker for that regard. I think she's an amazing comedian in many ways. Um, I wouldn't go into... anything but to say her life is an artistic triumph as a comic and I think that there's nothing higher you can say about someone like her um, women don't get a chance at the big table even if they're connected like she was and she was a little bit connected and the fact that she made pictures that were so big and that she made pictures that were nominated for well, best picture well it's a testament to her power that she stood apart from Rob Reiner Carl Reiner, her brother Gary. You don't, Spielberg. You blah, think blah, of blah. her separate, yep, yep, and yep. that's impressive. The first obituaries bummed me out because it was actress Penny Marshall. Really? Yeah, there was a couple that were actress Penny Marshall. And, like, yeah, she was a famous actress. She was in The Odd Couple. She was in Laverne and Shirley for eight years. But no male director no. would they say no. uh, Ray Stark was an actor or Bob Evans was an actor, which they were. Right. Or, 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 or Bob Evans' fashion executive. Right. They would go right to their movie career. And um, she also made Awakenings with Robin and uh, Robert De Niro. And let's not make a value judgment on the movie or any of the things that happen in the movie. To make a movie about aphasia, to make a movie about Oliver Sacks, to make a movie with two giant stars like that at the time she made it, it's fantastic. And so I'll hear nothing but overwhelming praise. And uh, I meant to play the Madonna song here. But I haven't. Do you want to cue it up? All right, I will. All right, I'll spin a little. Um, Penny Marshall. Uh, at all events, uh, Penny Marshall brought joy into people's lives. And uh, at the end of the day, there's nothing better I'll go a step further. She empowered women as an actress, a writer, a director, a performer, and a caster of movies. She made a picture about all women. She made more than one picture. And I won't hear anything else. Spaghetti, get over here. 
There's no crying in baseball. There's no <laughs> crying. Are you crying? <laughs> I hit 530 home runs for you. Uh, there you go. There's a lot here. Can you see that? some groovy news Jezebel um, wait what is this warm nice feeling in my heart some good news my friends abortion will be free and legal in Ireland starting in the new year once the president signs off in the new legislation earlier this month the lower and upper house of the Irish Irish legislature voted to pass the law allowing a person to seek an abortion in the 12th week of pregnancy Um, just fantastic Um, will you talk about the Nevada legislature Oh, it's the first with a majority of women, uh, which means I think by one person, but uh, taken all together. In the Senate, there's 23 women. 32 women and 31 men? Mm Mm-hmm. No, it's phenomenal. Uh, And Jackie Rosen was uh, tweeting about that today, how... how, uh, what a powerful moment that is uh, that it's the first time a state has had a majority of women in the state legislature, which is kind of sad that it took till 2018 for that to happen. But I think we're going to see that there's a tide uh, and it's everything is changing. One of the, the women, uh, Rochelle Nguyen, uh, or when an attorney uh, she's a criminal defense lawyer called the milestone fantastic when women do better families are stronger voters last month elected 30 women and 30 men with three vacancies to be decided no other state has a legislature where at least half of the seats really? are filled by women according to the national conference of state legislatures with the two Nevada appointments women will make up 28.6% of state state legislatures legislators nationwide when new legislators are sworn into office in 2019 women made up 24.3% of state legislators in the US a decade ago so it's very slow progress Sometimes dramatic shifts in American politics go unnoticed. They are buried under other news or dismissed because they represent such a sharp break from longstanding assumptions and expectations. It's extraordinary that at this late date, it's the first time, really, that one legislature, and that it's Nevada, which is just fantastic. Of all places. Right? But then the demographics of Nevada have changed remarkably in the last 10 years. 15 years. I mean, even Hawaii thinks of it as another island. Right. There are so many Hawaiians that live in Las Vegas now because of the hotel business in both places. Yes. That it's changed the face of politics there. I think so. And that's for the better. Yeah. And uh, having Jackie Rosen win was really a huge oh leap forward. Oh, my God. The land of Paul Axel. Um, a couple of things here. E.J. Dion in the Washington Post said, um, sometimes dramatic shifts in American politics go unnoticed. They're buried under other news. It's because of the bump stock bill. Supporters of reasonable gun regulation have been so cowed by the NRA propaganda over the last 25 years were reluctant to even imagine such a thing. No matter how many innocents are slaughtered and how many Americans organize, we assume the NRA and its allies will eventually overpower us. Let's concede up front that the vast overrepresentation of rural states in the Senate tilts the system undemocratically toward those who claim the government. 
Um, Butina this week, Wyoming and Idaho has been, um, uh, uh, the, the bump stock legislation is, uh, I think we're at a tipping point here where mm-hmm. I detest the word tipping point or the phrase <laughs> rather, but I think, um, you're going to see, um, so many people were elected on, um, uh, gun, uh, safe gun legislation and healthcare, mm-hmm. um, that this will change. And um, what was the number of people that signed off on a signed up? I mean, for affordable health care, it was up by four million. And by the way, less glitches. Mm-hmm. Um, it actually went smoother this time. All the things that uh, the GOP is trying to undermine health and um, gun, you know, laws. They're not able to do it all. Margaret Sullivan has said in the Washington Post. Um, uh, it may not be very pretty to hear, but it's undeniable. She was talking about the Kellyanne Conway interview this week with um, Chris Cuomo on CNN. There was also, subsequent to that, um, a Sarah Huckabee Sanders uh, press conference where she came out for 10 minutes and tried to lay some lies on the public. And MSNBC in real time um, cut away from her and, and fact-checked everything. On. Finally. Well, here's the point. Um, Orange 45 doesn't tell the truth. The falsehood count is over 6,000. And uh, we're up to, uh, what is it called now? An endless pile of Pinocchios. <laughs> In Washington Post, yes. Yes, he simply doesn't tell the truth anymore. The news media continues, even now when it should know better, to be addicted to both sides' journalism in the name of fairness, objectivity, and respect for the office of the presidency. It still seems to take Trump along with an array of deceptive surrogates at his word, knowing full well his word isn't good. When major news organizations publish tweets and news alerts that repeat falsehoods merely because the president uttered them, it's the same kind of journalistic malpractice as offering a prime interview spot to Kellyanne Conway. The literary hub, Jennifer, hit me to this this week. Alexander Heman on the problem with civility. You can go to this. It's on literary hub. Alexander Heman is from the Balkans. This is the quotes he talked about. The article is about him being friends with a friend of his who, during the Balkan War, um was on the Serbian side and um, more and more was drawn into their web of fascism. Only those safe from fascism and its practices are likely to think there might be a benefit in exchanging ideas with fascists. It's what we've been talking about on the show since mm-hmm. the very beginning and what Jennifer said so succinctly, and I shall repeat here, there's what's right and there's the abyss. There isn't two sides to every story, and there aren't both sides to the Democratic-Republican debate and whatnot. There's fascism, which includes homophobia, transphobia. Um, caging mis- children. Yeah, caging children, misogyny, and absolute terror and hala. And those people don't need to be heard from. You don't need to entertain their opinion. When young children have... Tattoos written on their arms when young children are killed for our purposes when... Denied water. Yeah. It's frightening to think we could be entering the civil war mode wherein none of the differences and disagreements can be hashed out in discussion. It's quite possible there's no resolution to the present situation until one side's thoroughly destroyed as an ideological power and political entity... If that is the case, the inescapable struggle requires that anti-fascist forces clearly identify the enemy and commit to defeating them, whoever they are, whatever it takes. The time of conversations with fascists is over, even though they might be your best friend from high school. That I would urge you to read the article on Literary Hub by Alexander Himan, but I want to read you one sentence over again. There's no resolution to the present situation until one side's thoroughly destroyed as an ideological power and political entity. It's not a matter anymore of we have to entertain that they have something to say. The side that thinks that the Syrian war is over with ISIS, the side that thinks that caging babies and killing children's cool, the side that thinks that... Um, um, blocking trans people, the side that thinks that um, making a Muslim ban is the law of the land, the side that thinks that denying women all of their physical autonomy, the side that thinks that um, 
abject racism and is right or has a voice in the land, they're fascists. Mm -hmm. And they don't have to be, not only do they not have to be heard from, let me go further. The time of conversations with fascists is over. Um, you don't have to listen to them. You don't have to entertain them. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Kellyanne Conway, whomever you can think of, whatever surrogates he has, and him, and Pence, and Giuliani, and Miller, and Bannon, and whomever gets to speak forward. Boo. But also nonsense that you read, and it's really important to support journalists that are, are doing the good work, like the people at the Fresno Bee who uncovered Devin Nunes's activities, um, Julie K. Brown at the Miami Herald, yes. Jerry Mitchell at the Clarion Ledger, uh, so many local papers who are really trying to uncover what's happening. There's loads of people out there who are doing the right thing. That's why I don't want to seem like abject. And it's not an all or nothing situation. It's simply that you have to shut down the voices of um, terror and horror, I think. Well, and you have to vet. You have to do some research. The Financial Times uh, named George Soros the person of the year. George Soros was a refugee um, George Soros is a philanthropist and humanitarian. He gives loads of money to humanitarian causes. Yes, he's a millionaire. Yes, he's a rich person. Yes, he deals with money and stuff. Um, the Financial Times isn't a left-wing newspaper. Uh, the Financial no. Times is mm, somewhere between Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal. I loved what they said, though, that about him trying to support democracy, yeah, especially right now and given what's happening in Hungary. The anti-Semitism in the world and the anti-Semitism in our government, the anti-Semitism in Hungary, mm -hmm. and he's from Hungary, he escaped from Nazi Germany. He was 14 during the war. Um, I urge you to go to uh, the Financial Times and uh, look up George Soros. He's not the evil person that the media would have you believe. He's, um, if in fact anything, um, sort of the opposite of that. People are complex. Well, but what, so much of what this administration does is projection. Whatever they are, they accuse others of being. The anti-Semitism of this administration is... Shocking. Yeah. Um, our national security advisor, um, General Flynn, um, was in court this week. He um, is clearly uh, someone who uh, has been a traitor to the United States. Uh, let me read you a little bit from the Washington Post. Uh, his defense attorney, Kellner, told the judge he and co-counsel Stephen Anthony were trying to show in their filing Flynn was different from the others who have admitted lying to special counsel. Noting that agents did not warn him he was under investigation and he did not have an attorney advising him. But Judge Sullivan rejected that argument, saying Flynn should be held to a higher standard. He was a high-ranking government official advising the President of the United States. I'm not hiding my disgust, my disdain for this criminal offense. Sullivan demanded to know whether Prosecutor Brandon Von Grack, whether Flynn could have been charged with treason, he appeared to sidestep the question. Later, Van Grock told the judge prosecutors did not believe Flynn committed treason. Nevertheless, Sullivan warned Flynn, I can't promise you a sentence that involves no jail time. Uh, they came back on that one. Um, Emmett Sullivan was clearly hacked off with uh, General Flynn this week. General Flynn, you may remember, was at the Republican National Convention. And took a special delight in harassing Hillary Clinton and said, if I'd done the tenth of what she did, I would be in jail. And led the chant well, of well, lock, well. Yeah. Yes. lock her up. Lock him up. And now is actually in the position of being, I don't know that he'll be locked up, um, but obviously the judge was angry with him today and they've um, moved the sentencing to a later date. Yeah, but that's on a condition that he... 
is uh, working with them. And he has been most cooperative Mm -hmm. of all of them. That's what's weird to me. The New York Times, Facebook deals and data. Facebook's largest partners did more access, got more access than Cambridge Analytica. Facebook never directly told users it was sharing this data. Facebook was sloppy. Regulators let it happen. Jennifer sent me all this today. If you've been thinking about quitting Facebook, you really must and you really ought to. Um, Mark Zuckerberg and all of them are, oh golly, it's just beyond beyond. They don't have anything else in mind but profit and growth. And they've been unregulated up till now as to the unbelievable depths that they'll present. Uh, and a plum uh, uh, to use your um, personal information. Uh, there's no uh, regulatory agencies that are um, holding down Facebook to what it should be held down to. Um, well, that's the problem because that's it's not going to change until that happens. However, having said that, uh, we're all going to have the merriest of Christmases. And uh, <laughs> uh, understand that everything's changing as fast as it possibly can. And that change is good. And that all of the legal system is still operating as it might. And Well, and there, oh, <laughs> there are heroes. There's loads of like heroes. Barbara Underwood and Carl Racine. Yep. The attorneys general of D.C. and New York. And there's a very excited dog outside right now. Uh, uh, totally excited a, a dog Christmas outside. Dog. Uh, a Christmas dog. A way excited Christmas dog. Uh, we'll be in um, uh, Florida in January with Drew Carey. I'll be at San Francisco uh, all through New Year's week. Uh, the podcast will be on the 30th at the Punch on in San Francisco. We wish you nothing but love and uh, major, major, major expectations for the holidays. We leave you with the kinks, um, Father Christmas, if it'll play. <laughs> may every page that you turn be a satchel page. May every bell that you ring be a cool pop bell. And if you have to buy bonds, make sure they're very bonds. But the last time I played Father Christmas, I stood outside a department store. A gang of kids came home.